In 2007, 22-year-old mother of two, Janet Moses, began experiencing a mental health crisis. She and her family believed that she had been hit with a curse, and they attempted a traditional Maori ceremony to lift the curse. Janet did not survive, and her family's beliefs were put on trial. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello, tonight's episode was suggested ages ago by Carla from the podcast, There Might Be Cupcakes. So definitely go check out her show, There Might Be Cupcakes, and thank you, Carla, for the suggestion. Before I get started on tonight's story, I just want to let you know that there may not be an episode next week. I'm going out of town and I'm just not sure I can get it done. There are five Sundays in June, so I'll still be producing the normal four episodes of Crime Lines plus the Patreon bonus episode. I'm just not sure I can get that fifth week in there with my current schedule. But I am actually going to do my best to get it done because I like to produce weekly content. But this is just a heads up. If there's no episode next week, know that my week must have gotten completely out of hand. I need to give a huge thank you to Jess, my researcher on this episode. Jess is from New Zealand, and she was able to help me with not just the facts of this case, but also the context and, of course, the pronunciations of the words. All mistakes on those are entirely my fault. As Jess pointed out to me, She was trying to take Māori words and process them phonetically through a New Zealand accent and then translate them somehow to my American accent in order to send me a pronunciation guide. That's when she decided it was easier just to record it, and that was a great idea. On the list of words she had to teach me how to say is the word Māori. I'm not even sure I'm hitting these vowels correctly, but I have been saying Māori my entire life. So I'm in the process of retraining myself. Just trust me that I'm doing my absolute best on this. One of the main sources for this episode is the documentary Belief. A full list of sources will be on the website. Doing an episode on someone's sincerely held religious beliefs that led to a death isn't something I take lightly, and I hesitated before committing to the story. It's when I started looking into what happened that I decided that this story is actually pretty important to tell. This story takes place in a suburb of Lower Hutt called Wainui Omata, I think. Mercifully, for me, it is called Wainui by pretty much everyone. If you do a Google Map aerial view, this area is huge land-wise, but most of it is unpopulated forest. It's a pretty typical suburb with shops near the center and then residential neighborhoods around with a population of about 17,000. And then the rest, again, is just unpopulated. The population of Wainui is about 25% Maori, which is significant because the overall national representation of Maori is 15% of the population in New Zealand. Wainui has literally 
one road into it and is otherwise surrounded by hills and trees, so it can feel a bit isolated and cut off from the surrounding areas. This is the area where Janet Moses grew up. She was born in November of 1984 into a very large extended family. And this was a very close family. They were a little insulated because of how many of them there were. Cousins were best friends, and in some ways they were raised as close as siblings. Everyone looked out for everyone else's children. They didn't really need to look outside of the family to the wider community for any of their needs. They were able to take care of themselves. Janet and our partner Shane met as teens and quickly paired up. When Janet was 19, their oldest daughter was born, and then two years later, they had a second daughter together. Janet's family said she was a loving and involved mother. Shane and Janet's relationship, though, wasn't smooth sailing by any stretch. Her family alleges there was verbal and emotional abuse by Shane, and that Janet had found out that he had cheated on her. As far as I know, Shane has not conceded to any of these things as a source of their relationship issues, but they were still definitely having issues, whatever they were. He took the two girls and moved in with family around September of 2007, though it doesn't seem as though they had completely split up from what I understand. A bit before Shane took the kids to his family, Janet's maternal grandmother had died. Janet's family was very traditional in structure, with the younger generations expected to look up to and follow their elders. Janet's grandmother was the matriarch of this family, so everyone looked to her for guidance. Janet was incredibly close to her grandmother, and now she was facing a split with her partner, possible custody issues. She probably really could have used her grandmother's guidance at that time. So we know going into September 2007, Janet was under a lot of stress. She was normally a bit quiet in large groups, but she was generally a happy and upbeat person. So in September-ish of 2007, when Janet stopped acting like a happy and upbeat person, her family grew concerned. At first, I'm sure things seemed normal. Her grandmother had recently died and the issues with Shane. Those are the types of things that would bring anyone down. But then Janet started acting more than just sad she would seem to check out. In a room full of people, she would stare off into space or at the wall and barely acknowledge other people in the room. So right here, I see a little bit of a flag. Shane had taken the kids to his family. It's not like when he left, he just left on his own and left her with the two kids. Shane, as far as I can tell, has not spoken about this, but I am wondering here if he saw some of Janet's struggles earlier, and that's why he took the kids to a family member's house to stay for a bit. What has been seen and portrayed 
as a sudden almost snapping in Janet's mind may have been a slower process that those not living with her didn't see happening. But regardless of when it started, now they were seeing it. They decided to hold a hui, which is a family meeting, to discuss what they should do about Janet. Before that, though, we're going to pause Janet for a second to talk really quickly about something else that happened in this same time frame. So while in a very small city called Greytown, Janet's sister stole a concrete decorative lion from outside of a hotel. It's not entirely clear when this happened, but it was likely in that September to October 2007 time frame, though it could have been August even. But this lion was a pair, one of a pair, and her sister took it because the family symbol was a lion, and the intention was to make this statue kind of a family mascot of sorts. So, okay, remember that lion because it comes up later. Anyway, we're at Saturday, October 6th, 2007, and there was a family party at a restaurant slash bar. Janet sat off by herself, again detached from the group. Shane was there, and she asked him about leaving early with her and the kids. But he wanted to stay, so Janet took her kids and went to her aunt's house with some cousins, and that's where they spent the night. The next day, everyone gathered at her grandmother's old house, where her grandfather was still living, for the Hui to discuss Janet's struggles. This was pretty common in the family, but these family meetings to discuss issues were generally led up to that point by Janet's grandmother. She did have several children who had spouses, but there was some unsurety over who was supposed to backfill that leadership position. And maybe there's even a little confusion about how they should proceed without an obvious family leader. But during this meeting and over the next several days, really, two people emerged as the new family leaders. One was Janet's uncle, 49-year-old John Tahana Guariri, and her aunt, 52-year-old Glennis Lynette Wright. Frankly, I'm not going to name a lot of the people in this story because it's simply just too many names. There were literally dozens of people. John and Glennis come up again and again, so it's easier to just give their names. There didn't seem to be any formal decision to make John and Glennis the leaders. They didn't vote on it. It just happened organically. During this family meeting, Janet did not respond to people, which was odd since they were talking about her openly in the room with her, and people were trying to talk to her as well, and she was just checked out. Unsure of what to do next, they decided to call in one of Janet's other uncles, who was a tahunga, which basically means an expert. For my American audience who may be more familiar with Native Hawaiian culture, it's the same as the word kahuna, 
which was unfortunately misappropriated by surfers. But these words mean the same thing. In this instance, Janet's uncle, Timmy Rahi, was a spiritual and cultural expert. Timmy Rahi was going to come over the next day to consult with the family. So Janet spent that night at her grandmother's house with her grandfather, her mother, and assorted family members. The lion that her sister had stolen, remember that thing, was at the house, and it seemed to upset Janet whenever she looked at it. The family was now connecting the stolen lion with Janet's behavior. They wondered if there was something wrong with the lion because Janet actually wasn't the only one with an issue. Shortly after it had been stolen, another family member had inexplicably fallen ill. This night, though, we've got the lion, we've got the family members, and Janet starts showing signs of what could be psychosis. She talked to things that weren't there. She was paranoid that something was after her. She would repeat the same word or string of words over and over again. Her mother even called family that night and said Janet was getting worse. The next day, Monday, October 8th, 2007, Timmy Rahi came over and all of this was explained to him, everything that was going on with Janet and also the lion. He said that a makatu had caused the issues with Janet's behavior. And a makatu is a concept as much as it is a word. But in this context, we're going to think of it as a curse with elements of demonic possession. According to Timmy Rahi, there were three sources for this curse, and he visualized them as claws. The first two were the pair of lions from the hotel. One of them had been stolen, but they were a pair, and they had been together for 100 years. They were angered by their separation. Now, the truth was that the lions were essentially lawn ornaments that the hotel manager bought new and then distressed to make them look like antiques. But Timmy Rahi didn't know this, and he said they needed to return the stolen lion to remove the first two claws from Janet. The third claw in the makatu was Shane. Removing that claw was up to the family since it was not a spiritual matter. He then prayed with the family and then blessed Janet with water by kind of flicking it at her. Water is a near-universal religious symbol for cleansing or purifying, and it even predates germ theory in most faiths. We have ritual washing, baptism, and blessing with holy water as pretty common examples. Timi Rahi then blessed the house with water in very much the same way, just sprinkling it about. He prayed again, and then he left. With it pretty clearly established that the lion was causing at least two-thirds of Janet's issues, the family returned it to the hotel the next day. They drove in a caravan of cars 
to make the hour or so drive to Greytown, Janet was in the back seat of one of the cars with relatives on either side, and she suddenly flipped out. She started screaming that she was going to kill one of the relatives in the back seat as soon as the car was stopped. The other relative in the back seat managed to mostly calm Janet down and no violence erupted. It's not clear to anyone what made Janet focus on that one relative like that, though. The family put the lion back where it had been at the hotel and treated this as a respectful and conciliatory action. They truly did believe that the lions had caused this curse. This was bolstered when Janet seemed to calm down after the lion was returned. They went back to the house. She sat down for dinner with the family. And while she wasn't back to her old self, she was calmer. She wasn't muttering nonsensical things. She seemed more connected. She seemed more grounded in reality. So let's go ahead and talk about psychosis for a second. We know it as a loss of contact with reality. That's the basic definition. But it doesn't mean a complete loss. Things that are really happening around the person get incorporated into the parts that aren't really happening. Janet's incident in the car where she was threatening her relative is a really good example. She knew the relative was sitting there next to her. She knew she was in a car. She knew why she was in the car. But when something happened in her head where she believed that relative was a threat to her, that was psychosis. Apply this to Janet getting quote-unquote better when the lion was returned. The family believed the lion was the cause, and they talked about it to and in front of Janet. So she also took that on as truth. The lion's presence became incorporated into her delusions and or hallucinations. So when the lion went away, it calmed that immediate issue, but it didn't cure her and it didn't prevent any future issues. While the family thought that the makatu was lifting, or at least those two claws of it were, it wasn't. They had just done something that calmed Janet down for the moment. If you work with someone who's psychotic, you can continue to do these things to calm them down in the moment, but it's not curing the hallucinations. Janet went to bed that night at her grandmother's house with a bunch of family around and woke up in the middle of the night having another incident. She was muttering and yelling Much of it was just the same words over and over again. So her family tried to write it down, thinking it might be a clue as to how to help her. They managed to get her back into bed, and they circled the bed, chanting the phrase, go with peace and love, to try to get the demon to leave Janet in what is called a lifting ceremony, as in lifting the makatu or the curse. In the past, Janet's grandmother was the one in the family who would handle any lifting ceremonies. And now this was sort of being run communally with a number of family members trying to figure out what they were supposed to do. So this continued all night and into Wednesday. 
Now, the Tonga was not available to come back to the house to consult the family on what their next steps were. I believe the documentary said he was hospitalized with some kind of condition at the time. So the family started using water like he did on Janet's forehead and flicking it around her. They continued with the prayers and the chanting and even stomping. When Janet was calm, she participated willingly in this. She would lie down while they chanted and prayed over her. She would even take smoke breaks, leaving the house, smoking, and then going back inside to continue with the lifting ceremony. But when she wasn't calm, the family would restrain her and hold her down on the bed during the ceremony. On Wednesday evening, Janet got into the shower. She turned the water up hot, but someone in the family said that it was the demon who wanted the hot water. Cold water was for cleansing. So they reached in and turned the faucet to cold. Janet started yelling and trying to get out of the cold shower, but they held her in there under the shower faucet. She was yelling, so water was going into her mouth, and between being forced to swallow this water and getting upset, she vomited. And things take a sharp left turn here because the family sees this as a good thing. Instead of pausing and thinking that the vomiting in a cold shower was showing a negative side of this ceremony or the direction it was going in, they saw this as a sign the demon was beginning to leave Janet. So they saw it as they were doing the right thing. After Janet vomited in the shower, they cleaned it up with a towel and declared the bathroom tapu. Now, tapu is the word we get our English word taboo from. So basically, this meant the bathroom was off limits to anyone other than Janet. It was the only bathroom in the house, and there were dozens of people coming and going from that house. Many were staying there all the time, showing their support for Janet. They had to use towels and diapers and the yard to use the bathroom, and some ended up just wetting themselves. Around the time of the shower vomiting, Shane showed up at the house. He insisted on seeing Janet, but they wouldn't let him. He was the third claw. He was part of why they couldn't lift the curse. So they certainly weren't going to backtrack on any progress they had made by letting him in. He ended up leaving without having seen Janet. Everything gets much worse on Thursday. Mind you, there were about 40 people in the small home at that point, and many of them hadn't slept for more than a few hours in the past two, three, four days. They had been praying and chanting and singing and stomping. They hadn't seen their kids or their spouses. They hadn't gone to work. They hadn't called friends. They were all just so focused on Janet and this lifting ceremony, which was no longer a traditional lifting ceremony. It had morphed in this situation into something much, much more intense. Before we go any further, I just wanted to say that one of the many tragedies in this story is how well-intentioned they all were. John, Glennis, and everyone else who went through that door believed they were helping Janet, 
100%. As it got hot and exhausting and uncomfortable and they had nowhere to go to the bathroom, no one left. They viewed it like sitting with a sick relative. Even if you don't feel you have the energy left to give, you can't care for them any longer, you still do it. So I think it would be reductive to think of this as some kind of Maori form of satanic panic. The family was first consumed with their love and concern for Janet, but what they were overtaken by was hysteria. Now, some of the younger generation did say after everything happened that they thought partway through that maybe Janet needed psychiatric help, that this was a mental health issue and not a spiritual issue. But because of this traditional hierarchy in their family structure, they didn't feel that they could speak up. Kids, even adult ones, didn't contradict their elders. They assumed they were the ones who didn't know what they were doing. So on Thursday, the family started with the cold showers again, purposely holding Janet's face in the stream of water to try to get her to vomit again, which, of course, happened. Now, this told them that it was working, so they kept doing it. They also forced her to drink a lot of water, believing that it was cleansing her. Then they moved to pouring water from cups and bowls on her face while she was lying on the floor. Her Aunt Glennis was the one pouring it as others filled the bowls to hand to her. They were doing this so quickly and in such quantity that the carpets were completely drenched, and John punched a small hole in the kitchen floor to drain it. That's how much water was being dumped on Janet and spilling to the floor. Some water was also being dumped on the family members as it was really hot in there. These little houses on the street are close together, and neighbors heard the noise of this lifting ceremony, the stamping and the chanting and the singing. It was a pretty quiet neighborhood normally. The neighbors were used to large family gatherings at the home, but not a lot of noise, and they wanted to be good neighbors. They didn't want to complain about a noise issue when it wasn't a normal, common occurrence, so they just let it slide. The family participating in this was largely Janet's mother's side, but her father Gerald did come to the house during that week. He left on Thursday evening and asked Janet during one of her lucid moments to come with him. He wanted to get her to a doctor. He was believing that this was not a spiritual issue. This was a medical issue. Janet refused to go with him, and this is important, because while Janet was fighting the lifting ceremony during her breaks with reality, and when the ceremony became very intense, like forcing water in her face— when she was lucid and moving about the house freely, she seemed to be fully consenting to what was happening and kept going back. But things just became more frenzied after Gerald left. Janet was having visual hallucinations of things coming at her. She was pointing and yelling. Family members grabbed whatever they could, and they were fighting off whatever Janet was seeing. She had a bone-carving necklace that she wore, 
and the family took that from her, thinking somehow the demon was getting power from it. And then they started thinking that the Makutu had transferred to others in the room, including to a 14-year-old girl. This 14-year-old was a cousin of Janet's. Her name has been suppressed by the court because she was a minor and a victim. The family began holding her down as well and pouring the water on her. But the family also thought they saw demons in her eyes and in Janet's eyes, and they were trying to pick them out physically, which was leaving injuries to their eyes. The other family members who went through some portion of the lifting ceremony themselves were uninjured, and they were between the ages of 14 and 31. This continued again through Thursday night, and it's unclear in the process when Janet actually died. It's believed to have been around 8 a.m. on Friday, October 12th. The family didn't realize she was dead at first. They were still pouring water on her. CPR was attempted when they realized she was no longer breathing, but no one was trained in it, so they were just imitating what they thought you were supposed to do. When they couldn't revive her, they moved her from the floor back onto the bed. Now, while you would hope this would be a sobering moment, something that snapped the family out of this hysteria, it did not. They continued for a few more hours to exercise the demons in other people, including that 14-year-old, who by this point had bloodied eyes from them being gouged at. At some point in the later afternoon, things did begin to calm down, and the ceremonies all ended. It's not clear what led to this calming down, but I think removing Janet's swings from lucidity to psychosis was a contributing factor to them eventually calming down. They didn't have that stimuli keeping the hysteria up. Because the original Tahunga was not available, they called another elder in at this point and asked him to bless Janet's body. He was surprised, to say the least, at what he walked into in that house. He told them to get the 14-year-old to the hospital and to call the police. At 5.30 that evening, the police were finally called, which would be at least nine hours, probably more, since Janet had died. The police didn't seem sure what they were walking into. The carpets were soaked. A child was on her way to the hospital with gouged eyes. There were dozens of people in this little home. But Janet was lying there somewhat peacefully on the bed, so it appeared just as likely she had died of natural causes than anything else just looking at her. The injuries to Janet's body were more obvious with a closer look. She had bruises and scratches from being restrained. Her eyes had the same injuries as her 14-year-old cousin. And on autopsy, it showed she had drowned. While we usually think of drowning as something that happens when you're submerged in water, it is possible to drown on land. Drowning simply means that breathing was impaired due to water being taken into your airways. The coroner's report is not an open record, 
So we don't know if this was a traditional drowning in the sense that her lungs took in water and caused pulmonary edema, or if what Janet experienced is what is sometimes called dry drowning. This is when the vocal cords spasm when taking in too much water, and that obstructs the breathing. It doesn't actually have to be a lot of water, and I read it's more common with cold water, which we know they were using during this ceremony. The police investigation led to interviewing over 100 of Janet's family members. Everyone was forthcoming on what happened, and they cooperated with police. Of the 40 or so people who were in and out that week, many of them never touched Janet. They were just sort of keeping vigil. They were just supporting her and maybe praying over her, but many of them never actually touched her. So after police sorted out who had what role in this lifting ceremony, which I hesitate to call it a lifting ceremony because obviously this was not a proper lifting ceremony, but in this ceremony, nine people were eventually charged with Janet's murder. The trial occurred in July 2009 and lasted six weeks. No one denied what happened, though the family still maintained that Janet had been possessed. They maintained that they were helping her. The Crown attempted to try this case while still being culturally sensitive to the family and to the Maori people. They didn't want to put these beliefs on trial, just the decisions made by those nine core family members to continue the ceremony, even as Janet became distressed, even as Janet was struggling. But even still, they were trying this case in the court that was established by colonizers who had tried to assimilate the Maori and prevent actively prevent the sharing of their culture over generations. And they were laying bare something that was considered a sacred ceremony. So being sensitive while trying this case was pretty much impossible. The Crown tried to show that it wasn't the lifting ceremony that was the problem, but rather how this was performed that was the problem. This is not how lifting ceremonies are meant to be performed. Had Timmy Rahi been available to come back, or had they called in another Tahunga in the meantime, Janet would probably still be alive. It wouldn't have gotten this far. The family took something that they didn't fully understand and ramped it up with lack of sleep, lack of food, and lack of outside perspective. They really lost touch with what they were doing. It was a bad situation all around. On the other hand, the main reason they didn't know how to properly conduct a Makatu lifting ceremony was because they had been distanced from their culture. All of the Maori have been. Anyone who lives in a former colony, you probably know how indigenous populations in your country were historically treated. So all of that applies here. All of it. Specifically to this issue, in 1907, the Tahunga Suppression Act was passed. It prevented, through threatened prosecution, 
elders from gathering to share their knowledge or to perform any ceremony. It was supposedly aimed toward preventing traditional healing methods, which were seen as dangerous in the light of modern medicine, but it was broad enough to cover pretty much anything. It was repealed in 1962, so we have 55 years of lost transfer of knowledge. Obviously, the knowledge survived, and the Tohunga who are currently working in New Zealand are trying to keep traditional Maori beliefs and language alive. But this 55-year gap in transferring knowledge in keeping the oral traditions alive, just the culture of telling these stories and telling about these ceremonies had lasting effects. And so this meant that John and Glennis and even Janet had the belief in the Makatu and the lifting ceremony without the knowledge. And that led to this ceremony being performed incorrectly. Restraining a person is occasionally a part of the ceremony, and it can lead to some bruising. But the injuries to Janet and the gallons and gallons of water, rather than splashing it, it shows they didn't know what they were doing. Now, the defense didn't argue the case I'm making. What they argued was that this was a matter of consent. In every lucid moment Janet had, according to everyone who witnessed this, including her father, she was consenting. She was willingly participating in the ceremony. Partway through the trial, the charges against one of the nine was dismissed due to lack of evidence. Eventually, though, three of the defendants were found not guilty. John, Glennis, and three others were found guilty of manslaughter. All of those who were found guilty were aunts and uncles of Janet, so they were the level of family that would have been on the hierarchy towards the top. When sentencing came around in August of 2009, the Crown was asking for jail time, particularly for Glennis and John, who were leading the ceremony. And there is an interesting precedent to this case, believe it or not. In 2000, a Christian pastor named Luke Lee was performing an exorcism on a parishioner in New Zealand. In the process, he strangled her. He told those around her praying for her that she was going to have a look around heaven before coming back to life. Six days later, they were still praying when police found the decomposing body still in the bed. Luke Lee was tried and convicted of manslaughter and given six years. So that's what the Crown was asking for in the Janet Moses case, six years in prison. But plot twist, Luke Lee's conviction was overturned in 2006, after he had already served his time, because the jury wasn't allowed to consider the topic of consent in his trial. Did his parishioner consent to the exorcism? This appeal asked the question, basically, about how far can the government go to save people from themselves? And the court in this case decided that personal autonomy should be placed at a high value, whether it's something as safe as badminton 
or as risky as contact sports. The jury should have been able to consider whether or not the parishioner had consented to the exorcism knowing it was risky. In Janet's case, though, consent was allowed to be considered, and that's possibly because of the Luke Lee case. And the verdict was still manslaughter, so the Crown still wanted the six years. But while the Luke Lee case seems pretty similar on the surface from a legal standpoint, there are some big differences if we look at it from another direction. The main one was that Janet's family felt nothing but remorse over this. They were living with the consequences of what happened that day, and that was a very heavy punishment for them. Everyone convicted was given community-based sentences, not jail time. They were either under a form of house arrest with a curfew, or they were given community service hours, or they were given both. The court didn't think anyone would be served by putting this family in prison because the motive here was love and any reckless action came from a misunderstood cultural practice and a skewed perspective. I was curious what would happen if this happened in the United States, known for having much stiffer penalties for pretty much every single crime. The closest I could find here was the 2003 death of eight-year-old Terrence Cottrell Jr. in an exorcism in Wisconsin. Ray Hemphill, who performed the exorcism, was given two and a half years in jail, seven and a half years probation, had to pay $1,200 restitution, and then had to refrain from performing exorcisms until he received excessive training in them. Now, two and a half years in jail is worse than no years in jail, but this wasn't nearly as stiff of a sentence as I thought I was going to find when I started looking into this. I would have thought more like 10 years. As far as a case of a family performing an exorcism and someone dying, I did find a case where two children died during an exorcism, which seems a little bit more on the point. But both of the adults in that case pleaded guilty and were committed to psychiatric hospitals. So that wasn't a case of a sincerely held religious belief like Janet's family. I think Janet's paternal grandfather spoke for Janet's surviving family when he testified in court, saying, We've made our peace with them. They didn't know what they were doing, and even though I told them not to go down that road, they chose to do it anyway. For that mistake, they're going to pay for the rest of their lives. I wish them well, all the same. Crime Lines is made possible through support through Patreon. For $1 a month, you get every episode two days early and ad-free. For $3 a month, you also get an exclusive bonus episode. Another way to support the show is to simply share it with a friend or on social media. Thank you for listening.